Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Hammermans for your wonderful kindness in making this happen and your leadership in the community. And uh, it's an honor to stand for the Hammerman Lecture. Um, thank you to Rabbi Shmuley. Where is he? To Rabbi Shmuley for his passion, his joy, his love of Torah, and his organizational skills in putting this all together. Um, thank you to Art Sion Congregation. This is really nice because this place still has that new shul smell. <laughs> you, you know, you know I, there's that wonderful, you know... It's wonderful. It's a beautiful place. And thank you to, uh, I'm very honored to welcome um, uh, Rabbi Mike and Rabbi Nate. Where are you? You're here. Congratulations to both of you in beautiful shul. And uh, old, old friends, Rabbi Michael and Rabbi Alana. Um, wonderful. What's the name of your place? It's called the, uh, it's the place next door. It's uh, wonderful. It's an honor to have you all here. And it's wonderful to see so many friends. I, I was the director of Ramah for four very long summers. And there's so many friends from those days that are here. Um, it's, you know, 600 adolescents in a confined space for nine weeks. You learn how to pray. <laughs> you know, you say, like, uh, like, no one get hurt and no one become a woman tonight. You know, this is, it was, so there's a lot of friends in the room. Um, um, a lot of friends in the room from those days. And I, the Helfgots are here and Ms. Feinberg is here and... The Moskowitzes are here. It's amazing that you still like me for after all these, because those were really interesting days back then. So, and I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore, because <laughs> it was. But it was a wonderful experience. So thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, we're going to learn Martin Buber in just a minute, but first we're going to try him out. So I'm going to ask you to indulge me for just a second. Put the hand out on a chair. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Stand up. Turn around. Say hello to the people behind you. Just say hello. Say hi. Nice to meet you. It's good you're here. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Get to know each other. Get each other's addresses. Don't sit down. You're going to be sitting a very long time. So stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Now, I'm from California, so I'm going to ask you to do something very California. Put your arms around the people next to you. Isn't that nice? That's right. Say, oh... This way, even if you don't like the lecture, you'll go home and say to your family, I stood next to the nicest smelling Jew in Glendale. Uh, right? No, the fact, I know, Scottsdale, Glendale, all the Dales, I have to, they should all live and be well. Right? So we, we have a chance to, don't, don't let go, this is the best part of the whole evening. Right? We have a chance to learn together, and when you learn together, you need to thank God for the gift of time to learn together. So we pray, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu Mitzvotav Etzivanu La'asok B'divrei 
Torah. And the Talmud teaches that if you learn, you bring peace to the world. So let's pray for peace. Yaseh Shalom, Yaseh Shalom, Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael. Yaseh Shalom, Yaseh Shalom, Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael. Yaseh Shalom, Yaseh Shalom, Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael. Yaseh Shalom, Yaseh Shalom, Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael. Yaseh Shalom, Yaseh Shalom, Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael. Thank you so much. Please, now you can take a seat. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a simple tune without breaking his neck. Why do we stay here? Because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That, I can tell you in one word. Tradition. We have traditions for everything, how we eat, how we sleep, even how we wear clothes. We wear little prayer shawls under our clothes. You'll ask me, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you, I don't know, it's a tradition. <laughs> because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Tradition. Dum, bum, 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 bum. Take the sheet, come on. Dum, bum, bum, bum. Tradition, tradition, bum-pa-rum-pum-pum-pa-rum-pum-pum, tradition, 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 bum-pa-rum-pum-pum-pum-pum-pum-pum-pum-pum. I need all the gentlemen now. Gentlemen, you're going to play the fathers, later you'll play the sons. Ready, gentlemen? Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home together. The Papa, the Papa, tradition. The Papa, the Papa, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Ladies, you're going to get to play Goldie. Ready? Who must know the way to make a proper home, a quiet home, a kosher home? Who must raise the family and run the home? So Papa's free to read the holy books together. The Mama, the Mama, tradition. The Mama, the Mama, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Gentlemen, you're back again. Ready? At three, I started Hebrew school. At ten, I learned a trade. I hear they picked a bride for me. I hope, bum, bum, she's pretty. The sun, the sun, tradition. The sun, the sun, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Ladies, and who does Mama teach? to mend and tend and fix, preparing me to marry whoever Papa picks. The daughter, the daughter, tradition. The daughter, the daughter, tradition. Bum, 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 bum. Now, this supposed to be a round now, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> 1964, Fiddler on the Roof opened on Broadway, one of the most successful Broadway shows ever. It was based on a set of stories written by the great Yiddish author Shalom Aleichem about a place in anywhere in Eastern Europe. Anatevka literally means anywhere. And a simple dairyman named Tevya, 
who's trying to scratch out a little tune without breaking his neck. And Tevia has five daughters. And Anna Tefka gives us a pic picture of life before the great revolution of modernity. In the ancient world, in the medieval world, and in the pre-modern world, everything about a person was rooted in tradition. Your script of your life was written before you were born. There was no such thing as an independent self. The self was totally embedded within the community and in tradition and governed by the authority of the community of family and God. Everything. If your father was a tailor, you'd grow up to be a tailor. If your father was a butcher, you grew up to be a butcher. If you were a woman, you were going to be a homemaker and a wife and a mother, no matter what your aptitudes were. Everything about you was determined before you were born. This is what tradition gave, a sense of security and stability. In the old world, people were born, lived their entire lives, and died in a circle no bigger than 100 miles. And that's just not geographic, that's cultural. The only people you met were people in your circle, and the only places you went were people you'd, places you'd been to before. There was a sense of familiarity to it, a sense of, well, tradition to it. And Tevia, he celebrates this tradition. Everything is decided for you, including the most intimate of decisions, who you're going to marry. And so one of the most powerful people in the community was Yenta the matchmaker. Now, Tevia has five daughters. And in that community, the marriage market was determined by three principal factors. Number one, yichis. If, if your family was related to a great rabbi, that gave you advantages. Shmuley, how many girls you got? How many daughters you got? <laughs> Two, okay, there you go. The bidding will now begin, right? <laughs> you, you, you married the daughter, you married the, the, the son of the rabbi to the richest girl in town. That's how you did. So number one was, was yichis. Number two was wealth was wealth. Right? Every girl is beautiful, but a girl with 100,000 shares of Apple stock is positively <laughs> rash, ravishing. And number three was, you know, if you were attractive. And, and Tevye's daughters had no yichis, no wealth, and they were very good personalities, right? <laughs> so there was a real worry. And the oldest one was Seidel, and she was already overripe. She's 19 years old and not married. Givald. So comes into the homestead, Yenta the matchmaker, with the wonderful news that she's found a match for Tzaitl, Mazel Tov. And who's it going to be? The butcher, Laser Wolf. Now, Laser Wolf was Tevia's age, her father's age. Laser Wolf was a drunk. When he was sober, he was violent, right? Laser Wolf was crude and coarse and, and uncultured and unrefined. Why is he a good match? Because if your daughter marries the butcher, she'll never be hungry. Tevi is delighted with the news that his daughter is going to marry the wealthy laser wolf. He goes to the local tavern and ties one on with the local uh, peasantry. They sing to life, to life, l'chaim, and they raise a glass of vodka in Nostrovia. And he's coming back to the homestead in a jolly mood when he meets his daughter Tzaitl at the gate of the homestead. And he embraces her and Tzaitl, mazel tov, you're going to be married. How wonderful. And she said, Papa... I do appreciate what you've done for me, but I can't marry Laser Wolf. And he says, really, you can't marry Laser Wolf. Why can't you marry Laser Wolf? Because I'm promised to another one. Oh, you're promised to somebody else. And who made this promise? We did ourselves. Oh, you're promised to someone else because you made this yourself. 
Okay, and who is it? Now, Tevye is stone-cold sober. Who is it that you're going to marry? The tailor, Muttle Kemsoil. Now, why on earth would you give up a match to the wealthy, important laser wolf to marry a skinny, starving, unaccomplished, orphan tailor. Muttle Kemsoil was an orphan, and Tevia brought him into the household to feed him. And so they grew up like brother and sister, and at some point they had fallen in love. Why would you give up a match to Laser Wolf to marry an unaccomplished, skinny, starving tailor, Muttle Kemsoil? And Saito looks at her father and recites the words which will change all of Jewish history. She said, Papa... I love him. I love him. To which Tevye responds with the words of the great Jewish sage Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? You don't marry for love. You marry out of a sense of responsibility, a sense of obligation. You marry to fulfill your duty to the community, to God and tradition. That's why you marry. What's love got to do with it? And she said, Pop, it's a different world. We marry because of love. You see, everyone loves Fiddler on the Roof because it's, a, it's an ode to tradition, but it's not. Fiddler on the Roof is the story of how tradition evaporated. The forces that came and destroyed tradition. And the first force that came and destroyed tradition was Seitel. Because she said, I will marry whom I love. You will not tell me how to live my life. I will choose my own mate based on my own sense of my own feelings, my own emotions. Romantic love as a symbol of the birth of the autonomous choosing self. I will choose my own life. This is the beginning of a revolution in the world, in culture, and certainly a revolution for the Jewish people who always phrase their religious life in terms of commandments and mitzvot, but comes along title and says, no, I will choose my own life. Autonomy, independence, the birth of a choosing sovereign self. This is the beginning of a revolution. And by the time Seidel comes to America, and her children and grandchildren carry this forward, we become a culture of choice. This is what modernity is all about. If your father was a tailor, you grow up to be a lawyer. If your father was a, law, was a, was a butcher, you grow up to be a doctor. Of course, if your father was a lawyer, you grow up to be an actor, you know, <laughs> or a poet, right? Some of you remember, by the way, you remember this, you, you saw this. You're old enough to remember because you're in my generation. The first great television advertising campaign was for a company that developed at-home hair coloring. It was called Clairol. And a woman, a very attractive woman, would get on with a big smile on her face, and she would say, right, if I have only one life to live, let me live it as a... It's a shame on you, because that hasn't been on television for 75 years. All right, let, watch, watch this. Let me live it as a blonde. Because it's true that... Ah, good God. <laughs> Think of all you could know if you didn't have to know that. It's, if I have only one life, let me live it as a... Whatever you choose to live it as. That's the point of modernity. I will not be told how to live my life. I will choose the conditions of my own existence. This is the beginning of modernity. This is the beginning of modernity. And America is the land of free choice. You can have whatever life you want to live. 
Whatever life you want to live, whatever your parents were is irrelevant. We take our kids, we fill them with education, and then we send them to a really peculiar institution called a university. University, what it does is wash clean all the values you gave your kid <laughs> and fill them up with all kinds of nourishkeit, right? So the kid comes home freshman year, Thanksgiving, with green hair, with metal things sticking on God knows where, and says, don't call me, you know, Rochel. My name is White Feather, <laughs> and I'm a vegan Buddhist. The kid says, no, I chose a, Mama, I chose a Jewish name, Whitefish, you know. <laughs> right? I, was, well, I moved back to Los Angeles. I was living in Texas for many years, and I moved back to L.A. in 1990, and I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard, which is this large street in L.A., and there's a billboard for a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. I was crashed the car. Because there's a large lady, a lady, Kanainohara, and, 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 and $3,500, you can have a set. I don't know if they're set or each. I'm not sure how that works. And I'm looking at this, I'm saying, you know, look, cosmetic surgery is important. It's wonderful for certain circumstances. But it's part of this whole ethos of American choice, right? Not only do you have the values you choose, the profession you choose, the politics you choose, the spirituality you choose, you don't have to live with the tukas you were born with. <laughs> you will give you Scarlett Johansson's tukas epis. I mean, I mean, you get this sense of it's free choice. That's America. That's number one. That's Seidel. The second daughter, remember what happens? The second daughter at Seidel's wedding, the second daughter, her name is Huddle, right? She falls in love with a young man named Perchik who's running away from the Tsar's police. He's a revolutionary from St. Petersburg. And at Seidel's wedding, he pushes through the mechitza, the mechitza and asks Huddle to dance. And everyone looks upon this as a scandal until Tevye asks Goldie to dance, and pretty soon everybody's dancing. Perchik, Perchik and Huddle, in the end, there's a sad part. I'll give you away the end. But they go off to Siberia together. This is that very sad moment in the train station when she sings, Far from the Home I Love. Perchik represents a second move of modernity. Traditionally, Jews waited for the Messiah to come to bring redemption. But in the mid-19th century, early 20th century, there arose a series of movements where Jews said, we're not waiting anymore. Waiting is passivity, and passivity is posnished. It's not who we are anymore. So you had revolutionary movements, Bolsheviks, communists, socialists, Zionists. Zionism was not an extension of Jewish life. Zionism was a rebellion against tradition. The tradition said, you wait for God to give you back a land. The Zionists said, we're not waiting no more. So they shaved off their payas, put on work clothes, moved to Israel, and grew oranges. That was the Zionist revolution. That's Perchik. And the third daughter was Hava. Hava was the kid with the book in front of her face always. And the books were kept in the library. And the library was adjacent to the church. And in the library, she meets Fietka. Fietka's a little Russian boy. And they fall in love. Chava, and it's interesting, it's Chava, because the word Chava, that's the name Eve in the Bible. She's the mother of all. She's the universal mother. She represents the opening of the Jewish mind. Up until that point, Eastern European Jews only talked to each other. But starting with the late 19th, early 20th century, modernity said, welcome to the world of Western culture. Welcome to languages and literature. Welcome to science and technology. Welcome. And Jews entered that world with relish, with a great deal of opportunity, was cherished. We all went to university. I had a, and suddenly we're not talking to each other anymore. We're talking to the outside world, the truth claims of Judaism. 
The things, the principles that we built our Torah upon are suddenly questioned because they're part of the, the, the environment of critical thinking, of scientific thought. You can call yourself a chosen people, but what does it do to your sensibility when you discover, according to Joseph Campbell, that every group, every tribe in the world call themselves a chosen people? We can say we're the chosen people and they're the Goyim, but the Navajos think that we're the Goyim and they're the chosen people. So do the Polynesians and the Norse and everybody else. I once had an Egyptian friend at my Seder. You ever do this? I, a friend of mine is an Egyptian. I invited him to the Seder. Big mistake. Because about halfway through, he said, okay, guys, enough. I mean, <laughs> enough. I mean, come on. You, you, get, you know that Midrash that says there weren't 10 plagues, there were 50 plagues, and there weren't 50 plagues, there were 200 plagues? He said, guys, you're laying it on a little thick, don't you think? I mean, come on, come on. I mean, because you can say these things in the family, but when you invite outsiders, it sounds different. That's Huddle. That's Hava. That's the third daughter. This is modernity. It, modernity brought us freedom because for all of its, for all of its warmth and for all of its, 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 its sense of purpose, tradition was binding. It was constraining and we wanted freedom. So modernity came and gave us the freedom of individuality. I can be who I am, not who tradition tells me to be. It brought us the freedom of empowerment we can shape the conditions of our existence and bring our own redemption. And it brought us an opening to the knowledge of the world and the arts and the sciences that the world enjoyed. That's what modernity brought us. And that's why Jews were so anxious to join modernity. The old joke was, Zayda said to me, Boychik, when you grow up, I want you to choose a profession. Yes, yeah, Zayda, what profession? I want you to become a marine biologist. What's a marine biologist, Zeta? What do you know from marine biologist? He says, it's simple. I want you to learn how to put on that scuba so you can dive to the bottom of New York Harbor and pick up all the talesim and all the tefillin and all the sidurim that were tossed overboard by the Jews who came to America. And they didn't throw those tefillin overboard because there was something. They threw them overboard because they were constraining and they wanted to breathe the freedom of America. And that's what modernity gave us. That's what modern, that was the promise of modernity. And it gave us that. Look, look at the lives we live. But there's something modernity left out. There's something modernity left out of the sense of what life is for. Modernity, modernity didn't give us the entire picture. It left something out. And during the course of the 20th century, there rose a group of Jewish thinkers who lived in both worlds. They all share the same biography. They were born and educated in Eastern Europe in the traditional world. They came to Berlin, which was the center of European culture and philosophy. All three of them were educated in Berlin and then eventually came to the West. Soloveitchik and Heschel came to America. Buber came to Israel. All three of them, same basic biography, and all three of them understood something about this move from tradition to modernity. Something was left out. And it wasn't simply tradition. It was something much deeper. Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel was this little man with a long gray beard and long hair. He was born in 1907 in Warsaw, a deeply Hasidic family. 
came to America in 1940, was rescued by Hebrew Union College, taught for his, most of his career at the Jewish Theological Seminary, my alma mater. Abraham Heschel would go across the country giving lectures, seminaries, schools, synagogues, colleges. And wherever he gave a lecture, he started it with the same little shtick. Heschel would look across, a small man, but he spoke with a, with a beautiful English, but with a slightly Germanic accent. He'd look across the, the, the podium and he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, a great miracle just happened. And the audience was silent. What miracle? What miracle just happened? He'd say, ladies and gentlemen, the sun just went down. And the audience would look at him like he was crazy. Like he was nuts. Like, why is that a miracle? The sun goes down. It goes down pretty much every night. Why is that a miracle? And then he would begin to talk about how a religious person apprehends the world. How does a religious person perceive reality? What does a religious person see in reality? And as he began to describe the elements of a religious person's vision of the world, you began to feel that the fact that the sun went down and we didn't rush to the window to see it, something's missing in us. Something's missing in our sensibility. Heschel called it a sense of the ineffable. Now the word ineffable, I had to look up, the word ineffable means that which you can't express. Heschel believed that each of us is born with five regular senses, sight and sound and, and touch and taste. Each one of us is born with these senses, but we're born with another one, with a sense of the ineffable, with a sense for a certain category of experiences which you can apprehend but you really can't describe. If I hand you a newborn child, especially if it's your own grandkid. You hold that child in your arms and you feel the infinite preciousness of this tiny being. The infinite power of this tiny being, its infinite potential, its infinite promise. And if I'd say to you, describe that to me, you'd say there's no words. There's no words. If you stand at the graveside of someone you love and you toss the earth in according to the tradition, and you hear that sickening sound of the clods of earth hitting the top of the casket. And you say to yourself, I'll miss this person. This person touched me. This person taught me. This person lifted me up. I can't believe they're gone. How am I going to live without them? There is a sense which you can experience, but you can't express it. If you stand by the ocean and watch the sun fall into the sea, if you walk through Muir Woods, through the redwoods of Muir Woods, if you go out here to the desert, just out here to the desert and you see the vast emptiness of the desert and you feel the quiet of the night coming on. Something that we sense but can't say. We all have a sense of the ineffable. The problem is that modernity doesn't understand that. Modernity doesn't have time for this. Modernity doesn't understand it because the sense of the ineffable doesn't contribute to our technological growth. It only, it only gives us a sense of why we're alive. Of why we're alive. That's how Heschel's thought worked. I gave you here some selections from these great philosophers. Take a look at the first page. Here's Martin Buber. Buber was born in Vienna in 1872, 1878. But his parents divorced when he was three years old, so he was raised by his grandfather in Eastern Europe, in Lemberg. His grandfather was a great rabbinic scholar, Solomon Buber. And so he's raised in a world of tradition, and he comes back to Berlin. And he studies for a doctorate in Berlin and becomes a professor 
And as a professor, he was sort of the leader of the Jewish student movement in Berlin. And he tells a story about how he arrived at his most important philosophical observation. Here's the story. It's in one of his biographical essays. In my early years, religion was for me the experience of exceptional moments. Buber was very touched by Buddhism in the beginning of the 20th century. And he, he'd studied Buddhism and he was much, he practiced a certain form of Buddhist meditation. So he would lock himself in his university office in the morning and he would meditate for some hours. These were hours of escape from my routine when the firm crust of the everyday was pierced and the world's appearances broke down. Religious experience was the experience of an otherness which did not fit into the regular course of life. Religion lifted me out. Regular life was about customary tasks. Religion was about illumination and ecstasy and rapture. It was an extraordinary event that taught me how wrong this was. One afternoon, after a morning of religious experience, I had a visit from an unknown young man. But I wasn't there in spirit. I was certainly friendly. I treated him politely as I did all his friends who were in the habit of seeking me out this time of day for advice. I conversed attentively and openly with him, only I failed to guess the questions which he did not put. Not long after that, I learned from one of his friends, he himself was no longer alive, the real content of these questions. I learned that he had come to me not accidentally, but brought by destiny, not for a chat, but for a decision. He had come to me, and he had come in this hour. What do we expect when we are in despair and we go to someone for help? Surely presence that lets us know that whatever happens to us, life still has meaning and worth. Since then, I have given up the search for religious experience, which is outside normal life, the exception, extraction, exaltation, or ecstasy, or it's given me up. I possess nothing but the everyday out of which I'm never taken. The only mystery in life that is available to us is here, where life, real life happens. Every moment of life is full of claim and responsibility. Religion belongs to all moments. It is simply living all moments open to the possibility of dialogue. What happened? A very simple thing. The professor was spending the morning in deep meditation. And he had office hours beginning at noon. But his meditation was so deep that when his meditation was finished and there was a knock at the door, he was still a little groggy from the meditation, right? And a young man came to him, because lots of kids would come to him, because he was the leader of the student union. He was the leader of the student movement, and they knew that he was a man of wisdom who could give them advice. And this young man came for, a, for an answer. But you know, there are the questions that we put, and there are questions that aren't articulated, but we hope someone's going to discover them. But Buber was groggy and he didn't discover the question. He answered all the questions that he was put. He answered all the questions that the young man articulated, but he didn't answer the question the young man didn't articulate. And the young man died. Now for the longest time it was thought that the kid went off and committed suicide. It wasn't that, it was actually something even worse, frankly, and I know this because his TA his teaching assistant at Hebrew University, Rivka Horowitz, was my professor, and she found his notes in the archive of the Hebrew University. What happened was, it was the beginning of the First World War. The young man was an only child to a single mom. 
and his mother didn't want him to go to war. And he had to choose, who do I love more, my mother or my fatherland? He wanted to go and fight for his country, but his mother wanted him to stay home, and he didn't know what to do, so he went to Buber to ask him. And he couldn't quite put it into words. Do I love my mother? Do I love my land? Where does my obligation lie? Where does my responsibility lie? And in the end, he enlisted, and he got killed in the war. And Buber never forgave himself for that. Maybe he would have given the kid another answer. Maybe the answer wouldn't have mattered anyway. Maybe the kid was going to go off. And, but Buber wasn't present. He wasn't there. And he realized that if religion means missing the deep questions that a human being presents to me when they stand before me, missing the needs of a heart that comes before me, he used those words, he came to me, he came for a decision, he came in that moment. He develops a whole a whole vocabulary of this, that every moment that we encounter another human being is filled with claim and responsibility. Claim is what the other places upon me, and responsibility is my inner need to respond to them. All real life, Buber proclaimed, is in those meetings, those encounters. And so he developed a whole philosophy out of this. He said, fundamentally, we have two kinds of encounters in life. When I meet another person in a functional situation, that's called an I-it. I'll give you my story. I was a graduate student going to my first years of rabbinical student in Los Angeles. So I, I lived a crazy life. I was a monk, basically. I got up early in the morning, drove to Hollywood to go to school, went to school from 8 in the morning till 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, taught Hebrew school from 4 o'clock till 8 o'clock. Then I went and to a study group where we prepared our Talmud lessons. Then I would come home, and I was living in an apartment with another fellow, so there was nothing in the refrigerator that didn't say Budweiser on it. So I needed something to eat. I hadn't eaten all day. And I discovered on Van Nuys Boulevard, which is one of the big business boulevards, there was an old-fashioned coffee shop, you know, with Naga Hyde uh, uh, booths and Formica tops, and it was the kind of place that after midnight, they'd serve you breakfast for $1.49. So I went to this place, and I would go four or five nights a week, and I would take a booth in the back, spread out my books in front of me, order the same thing every night, two eggs easy over, hash browns, hot chocolate. Every night, the same waitress took my order. Same waitress. She came and said, what do you want? I said, I want two eggs easy over hash browns and, and hot chocolate with a little bit of whipped cream on the top. Okay. What is she to me? What is that waitress to me? What is the bank teller, the supermarket checker, the bus driver, the cab driver, the security guard, the gardener, the maid? What are they to us? They're human beings, but we enter into a transaction where I see that human being not as a fully developed human being, but really for the function that they perform for me. For the function that they perform for me. I'm not interested in their past. I'm not interested in their future. I'm not interested in their inner life. It's an opaque, it's an opaque relationship. It's just on the outside. I just want my eggs and hash browns and hot chocolate. And you know that it's a, it's a functional relationship because if she didn't bring me the eggs the way I wanted them, I want a different waitress. Frankly, if the Japanese or Koreans could create a machine that could bring me my eggs, my hash browns, and my hot chocolate, that would be just fine. I wouldn't have to tip so much. So these days, I go to the bank. I don't talk to a teller anymore. I have a machine that takes my deposits. 
I go to the supermarket, I don't talk to a checker anymore. Do you have self-service checkout here, right? There's now restaurants where there are no waitresses or waiters. You, you punch it into a, into a computer and it sends it over somehow magically. That boober called I-it. And we have 100 I-it relationships every day. The world functions on I-it relationships. And what's important to recognize is that it's not just I-it, because what am I to her? I'm the Nuji customer, comes in at midnight, stays till 4 o'clock in the morning and doesn't tip very much. I'm an it to her. It's actually an it-it relationship. One night in my second year of rabbinical school, halfway through spring semester, one of the four or five nights a week, I got to my coffee shop. I went to my booth. I spread out my books. She came over. I didn't even look up from the book. She said, what do you have? And I started to say, two eggs over easy, hash browns, hot chocolate. And I happened to look up, and her eyes were filled with tears, and she'd been crying. I said, you OK? She said, yeah, yeah, fine. I'll bring you your food. I said, OK, OK. So she goes and gets the food. She slams it down on the table. Anything else? I said, no, are, are you OK? You look like you've been crying. Are you all right? I'm fine. So she had a tag. It said Debbie. You know, I think all waitresses have a tag that says Debbie. I said, is your, name, is your name Debbie? She said, yeah. I said, Debbie, my name is Ed. I'm studying to be a clergyman. I'm supposed to help people. Come sit down. We'll talk. It'll make you feel better. No, I can't. I said, Debbie, there's nobody here but you, me, and Jose the cook, and he's asleep, and the cops won't be here until 3.30. So come and sit down. No one knows. She says, I can't. I said, Debbie, come on. There's nobody here. Sit down. So she sits down, and she loses it. She starts to cry, and out pours the story. You can guess what the story was, right? She is the daughter of a single mom who got pregnant in high school and promised to her God that if she raised this daughter right, this daughter would have a better life. And the daughter went to high school and was an honor student and got accepted to UCLA. But the daughter fell in love in her senior year of high school with the boy to, the boy to end all boys. And they made a deal that he would go to the army and get shipped off to Germany and she would work for the two years he was away and they would come together and they would pool all the money and they would have a house with a white picket fence and then she would go to college and they would live the life they were living the war. And it was supposed to be that way, and that's what the story was, and it was going to be perfect, and she just got a letter. In those days, we wrote letters. And the letter said, I love you. I met somebody here in Germany. She's a nurse in the hospital. She's now carrying my baby. I have to marry her. I hope that you'll forgive me. I'll always think of you fondly. And what am I going to do? I can't tell my mother because this is the thing she told me would happen, and it happened, and I'm so ashamed that it happened, and I gave up my admission to UCLA, and here I am stuck in this goddamn coffee shop talking to you. And What is she to me now? She's not just a server anymore. She's not just a waitress. She's Debbie. She has a past. And she has an inside. And she has a future. And while as my server, she could be replaced, as Debbie, she can't be replaced. And I listen to her, and I reach out, and I hold her hand, and I say, the first thing you're going to do is go tell your mother. She'll kill me. She won't kill you. She'll kill you for 10 minutes. Then she's going to hold you, because she knows she loves you. And you know she loves you. So go tell your mother. Really? Yes. Then the next thing you're going to do is call UCLA and reinstate your admissions file. I can do that? Sure, you can do it. They'll let you in before. They'll let you in now. You'll explain to them what happened. And then you're going to call Valley College, which is the local JC, and you're going to see if you can get into take freshman English and calculus and get, get started, and then you'll enter through fall quarter next year. I can do that? Of course you can do that. Really? 
I said, Debbie, you're a bright girl. You have a future. You have a good future. This guy actually did you a favor because he's a creep. Oh, of course he's a creep. What am I to her? I'm not an it anymore. I'm a listening ear. I'm someone who has gathered in her pain and given her back some strength. That Buber called an I-thou relationship. It's in I-thou relationships that we gain a sense of why we're alive. It's in I-thou relationships that we gain a sense of what it is we do in the world, where, where life matters. The problem, said Buber, is that we live in a cultural moment when we have no patience for I-thou relations, right? The person in front of me in the bank, when I do have to talk to the teller, and the bank teller says, how are you? He said, you really want to know? I mean, stay behind that glass wall and give me my money back, right? We have no patience for an I-thou relationship. We have no language for an I-thou relationship. We, have no, we, have, we, we don't have the ability to cultivate these. This, by the way, is what Buber said religion is for. The reason I made you get up a few moments ago and meet each other is because that's what synagogue is for. It's a Beit Knesset. It's a place where we gather together and meet each other and engage with each other in life. You know this. You've been to a Shiva minion? Have you ever been the mourner at the Shiva minion? There's this remarkable feeling of being lifted up by a community. I mean, aside from the tsunami of coffee cake that comes your way, right? There's this sense in which friends, people come to lift us up and remind us that we, we, we matter in their lives. That's what Buber called the meaning of life taught by an I-thou relationship. And that's why he said this is what religion is. Religion is all about feeling the presence of God in the eyes of the other and cultivating a, a lifestyle of these relationships in which you bring everyone of the, of the encounters with another human being into that realm of humanity. So what would happen if you stopped for a few moments and you said to the security guard, what's your name? Where are you from? How did you get into this line of work? Talk to me. And Kevin became Kevin, and Jose became Jose, and Dorothy became Dorothy, and they became human to us. That's, for Buber, the essence of Judaism. The essence of Judaism is to connect ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, you'll love God, with ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha, you will love the other. That, for Buber, is the ultimate religious moment. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Buber, like Heschel, understood that there is part of modernity which has, been, which has left out part of us. A part of our humanity has been left out, and it's the part that gives us a sense of the meaning and purpose and depth of existence. The third thinker I'd like to introduce you to is the most arcane of all of them. His name is Yoshebert Soloveitchik. He was the great Rav of Yeshiva University. So in the Orthodox world, he's the Rav. He's well known. But in the non-Orthodox world, he's barely known. And he writes in a manner which is virtually incomprehensible. <laughs> the good thing that happened a couple of years ago is that a writer for the New York Times discovered him, David Brooks. David Brooks, a Jewish guy, who happens to write a column. It used to be the right-wing column for the New York Times, and they hired Brett Stevens, so now he's off the hook. And, and, and Brooks 
Brooks actually, the story about Brooks is interesting. Brooks uh, divorced his wife and was very despondent, so he started uh, studying with Erica Brown, who's a friend of ours, and Erica introduced him to the writing of Soloveitchik, and Brooks took up Soloveitchik's writing and popularized it in a book called The Road to Character. Soloveitchik says inside of every human being lives two people, Adam one and Adam two. He connects these with the two stories of creation in the book of Genesis. Part of us is the part of us that sees the world as an object for our conquest, to gain power in the world, to gain power over nature, to gain power in the world so that we can do the things we need to do, fulfills our sense of responsibility. This is holy. This is what God asked us to do. When I was six years old, I remember this very distinctly, and some of you will remember too. We all went back to school one afternoon when I was six, about 4.30 in the afternoon. Everybody in my neighborhood, all the kids in our school, showed up at school, and we all had to line up around the play yard. And one by one, we stood in front of the school nurse who gave us a little paper cup with a sugar cube soaked in this orange goo. And I said to my mom, what is this? She said, shut up and put it in your mouth. I said, why? She said to me, because my whole life I have been raised with the fear of a horrible disease called polio. Polio afflicted the President of the United States. Polio meant you couldn't swim in the summer. Polio was something that every American parent feared. And with this little sugar cube soaked in orange goo, polio went away. It went away. Soloveitchik would say this is part of God's, God's will. This is in fulfillment of God's will, to gain power over nature, to create a technology that makes the world livable. This is something God wants us to do. But that's not the whole of our being. There's another side of us. It's the side of us which doesn't conquer the world but cherishes it. It's the side of us which isn't interested in working partnerships with other people, but with existential partnerships, with loving relationships. It's the part of us that is open to the voice of God that echoes through the world. I, I get to meet with um, kids all the time in my shul. I had a young fellow. You guys probably had the same experience. Where's Micah? There he is. So the kid gets up for his bar mitzvah. I have to read everybody's bar mitzvah speech. To approve it, I approve the speech. The kid gets up and he says the five words which every rabbi is afraid of. I'm not going to say what the rabbi told me to say. <laughs> so I'm sitting there going, okay, let's see what you got. The kid said, today I am a man in the eyes of the Jewish world. I said, can I Nahara? Tomorrow you'll be in seventh grade again. So. <laughs> He said, I can't wait to grow up. I can't wait to be a man because when I'm a man, I'm going to drive a Ferrari. I'm going to have a condo in Maui and a condo in Mammoth. I'm going to date a supermodel. That's success. Now, I have to give this kid a bracha. <laughs> I am so anxious to revoke his bris <laughs> and throw him out of the Jewish people. But you can't do that in front of his parents. They're the ones who taught him these values. So I go over and I put my arm around him, <laughs> not around his throat, around his shoulder. <laughs> and I say to him, Boychik, I hope you get all that. I really do. I, I don't begrudge you any of that. I hope you have the Ferrari. Take me for a ride. I hope you have the condos. Invite me for a weekend. I hope you have a companion who is everything you want her to be. But if you get that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's not 
going to be enough. Because the image of success, the image of adulthood, the image of masculinity that you're holding on to is too small. You're going to write a resume one day. And that resume is going to list all your accomplishments, all your education, all your accolades, all your awards, all your achievements. And it's not going to be enough. Turn the resume over. And on the back, I want a different set of resume. Brooks calls these eulogy values, not resume values. He says, isn't it interesting that you go to a funeral and no one ever stands up at a funeral and says, I'm proud of my dad for all the money he made. Never heard that, not once. Right? And, and by us, there's a cemetery called Mount Sinai Memorial Park. It has 25,000 graves. No one's net worth is on any one of them. What does a kid say at the funeral? I'm proud of how many people my dad helped. I'm proud of how many people my mom nurtured and, and mentored. I'm proud of what they gave, not what they had. So I said, kid, turn, the, turn their resume over and answer three questions for me. Number one, who do you care for? And who cares for you? Is there somebody in the world who could call you at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, I need you, and you would drop everything at 3 o'clock in the morning without a word of protest and say, I'm coming? Then you're a very wealthy person. The second question is, what are your causes? What do you stand for in the world? What are you willing to fight for in the world? Every one of us needs something to fight for, something bigger than ourselves. And the third question is, what have you contributed to the world? What of art, of beauty, of justice, of truth have you put into the world that'll be there long after you're gone? These are eulogy values, not resume values. And I said, kid, that's what truth is. That will give you a life worth living. That will give you an adulthood worth blessing. I like the Ferrari. Don't get me wrong. But that won't get you anywhere. Because you'll have a Ferrari and have no place to go. But a sense of cause, a sense of relationship, and a sense of the beauty that you add to the world and the truth you add to the world, that will give you a sense of purpose. The great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century recognized that modernity is not a curse. It's given us blessings. But the blessings are incomplete. And they need to be completed with a wisdom that the ancient Jewish tradition gave us. For Buber, a sense that relationships have to have a depth to them. They can't just be functional. You have to have room for I-thou as well as I-it. For Heschel, it's a way of embracing the world through the sense of the ineffable, a sense of those experiences which bring us a radical amazement, a sense of, oh, wow, and engage us with a sense of awe. For Soloveitchik, it's a set of values where we understand that what I accomplish in my life, it's not enough simply to become powerful. I also have to become deep. I have to become sensitive. And sometimes, ironically, paradoxically, it's my defeats, it's my failures, it's my tragedies that make me into a person who understands what's really valuable in the world. These are things that modernity never taught us. But without them, without them, we live empty, shallow, hollow lives. And this is what they offered us. So let's finish with this. Go back to the first page. This is my favorite song from the show. In the third act, in the third act, after the girls have gotten married, this village is being liquidated by the Russian police. Everything in Tevye's life is falling apart. And so for a moment, there's a moment of quiet between Tevye and Goldie. 
And they look to each other, and he asks her a question. All right, so I need all the men to play the Tevia parts and all the women to play the Goldie parts, and I'll try to do both. Ready? Goldie, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool, I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? She doesn't understand the question. She honestly doesn't understand the question. She's done what was asked of her. She's fulfilled her obligations and responsibilities that tradition placed upon her. What has love got to do with any of this? She has fulfilled all the obligations why are you asking me this? And he says to her, and they go back in their history a little bit. Ready? Goldie, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was nervous. But my father and my mother said we learned to love each other. And now I'm asking Goldie, do you love me? I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Then you love me. I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you too altogether. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, bum, bum, bum. After 25 years, it's nice to know. That's a beautiful song. But you know what? The last line, it's just not right. It's not, it doesn't change a thing, but even so. It changes everything. Because what love is, is the element that modernity left out. We teach our kids to be independent. We teach our kids to be strong. We teach our kids to succeed. We teach our kids to be everything we want them to be to make it in the world. But there's one other piece. We have to teach them soul. And from soul comes love. And there has to be love, too. And what this song about, I think this song isn't just heavy and goldy. I think this song is the 3,500 years of Jewish tradition looking into the face of modernity and saying, can we live together? And modernity says we can live together because you have something to teach me. You can teach me love. And if Torah teaches us love, if it teaches us how to embrace the world with a sense of the ineffable, if it teaches us how to encounter each other and seek the thou in the other, if it teaches us how to embrace a set of values that give us a sense of the meaning of our existence and the purpose of our existence, then we can survive modernity. Because the great Jewish tradition understands that that's what makes us human. After 2,500 years, it's nice to know. Thank you. Any question at all, except about NFL officiating. <laughs> that is a halacha I can't explain. 
I'm sorry, I can't explain that. About anything at all. About anything. Yes, okay, please. Oh, he's coming around. Oh, he gets the mic. What, what mic do I use? Is it, does this one work? This, this is not a question, but a comment. Oh, okay. On Clairol. Yeah. The person who wrote the first commercials for Clairol was a nice Jewish girl named Shirley Palawa. There you go. Mazel tov. How did you know this? How do you know this? Oh, all right. I was going to say, I think, are you going to say you, you dated her? That's what I was hoping you'd say. <laughs> Shirley Polico. There you go. No, but you see, Clairol represents that modernity of choice. And that modernity of choice really is, is what we're all about because it's about choosing your own way in the world. And the question is then, it, this is a meaning system that's not going to be put on you. It's going to be a system you have to choose. In a certain way, we're all Jews by choice because we all enter this sanctuary out of free will. You could have gone many places tonight and seen many funny comedians, and you ended up with me, right? <laughs> but the, the point is that we, we, we choose, and the question is then how do you choose, and what these philosophers were trying to help us understand is you choose this way of life because it, it adds back, it puts back this piece of wisdom that the tradition knew that modernity has washed out of us. It's something that we desperately need. Thank you for giving the Shirley Polakoff line. Now I'm going to use that now. What's your name? Chuck. I can, now I can quote you. The great Chuck Abrams taught me that. <laughs> What's the relationship between the sacred and the true? So today we have relativists who say essentially nothing is true. Yeah. Um, we have absolutists who say there's one truth and I hold it. Right. We have certain versions of pluralism which claims, oh, well, really everything is true. Right. Um, and so uh, it can be awfully confusing for a young person in America today. Yeah. Well, the question is, what's worth, what's worth pursuing in your life? What's worth betting your life on? The sacred is a value concept. And the question is, what value do you want to stake your life on? And, and that's, a, that's a serious question. But you're not going to be able to answer that question using simple, conventional rationality. You need a different rationality to discover what your values are. Um, and that's what Heschel called the sense of the ineffable. It's what Buber called an I-thou relationship. It's what Soloveitchik called the Adam II, the eulogy values from Brooks instead of the resume values. That's, that's where the sacred lives. It, you have to adopt a second rationality, an alternative rationality, in order to arrive at that. And the fact that modernity has suppressed that rationality is the reason why people don't live with a sense of the sacred. And they go looking for sacred in all kinds of places, trying to find what's worth giving your life to, right? I mean, just, I think it's really interesting, for example, that we have more leisure time and more disposable income than any generation of human beings have ever had before, and not the foggiest idea what to do with it. So what we've done as a culture is invested heavily in entertainment, distraction, and diversion. When I was a kid living in Los Angeles, we had seven channels on our television. We had a 12-inch black and white TV without vertical hold. So I got this astigmatism the right way, right? <laughs> Two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and 13, that's it. You turned the channel, if there was nothing on, you went out to play. Then in my 13th year, the Lord God gave us UHF. So we had 28, which was educational TV, PBS, and 34, which was Tijuana television. And they would get crossed on our TV, so Alistair Cook would be chased by the Toros, you know. <laughs> now, 
I have cable television at home. I don't know how many of you have cable or select, whatever you get. How many channels on my cable television? We have Spectrum, right? Yeah, I'll tell you how many. There's 500 and something, enough channels that you don't actually have to watch anything. You can spend the whole night just going through the, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, like one night my wife comes and says, what are you watching? I said, I'm watching a lady cook a chicken naked episode. I mean, and, and, and Norwegian football and, and give, you know, and then there's pay-per-view. There's all these movies you can watch. And if that's not enough, you can turn 90 degrees and open the computer. And there's all these web pages you can go visit. And there's Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all these things. It's an entire culture of entertainment. Why? Why? When I was a kid, I, I was born the same year Disneyland opened. So me and Mickey are the same age. Hi! You know? Now, there's seven or eight Disneyland's, theme parks within a day's drive of my house, right? They even built one in the, they built another Disneyland in the parking lot of Disneyland. It's called California Adventure, right? So I took some relatives down there and I did, you know, I get down there and this little girl in the booth says, would you like to see the California Adventure? I said, honey, I just spent three hours on the five. <laughs> I've had all the California Adventure I could stomach. You get me to Fantasyland, and now. <laughs> I mean, fantasy. I mean, we have, we have invested so much in entertainment and diversion and distraction because people live without a sense of purpose, without a sense of why they're alive. They're looking for some way to kill all that extra time before they discover that their lives are empty and horrible. And there's this addiction to this, right? I mean, the greatest god in America is fun, F-N, fun. That's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for how to, how to kill a few hours, how to distract yourself for a few hours. This is what happens when you live in this world where there is no sense of purpose and meaning. And there's no sense of the sacred. There's no sense of what I'm going to give myself to. And that is the great malady of this culture. And, and, you know, and, and these philosophers saw this as a threat because if you don't figure out why you're alive then you begin to destroy the very life that animates you. And that's, what, that's why these philosophers were so passionate in trying to put this forward. Okay? Yeah, please. Thank you. Do you think that there's a mood towards, towards modernity, which is almost like a reversal to go back to some of the... Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, post-modernity... Well, first of all, there are people who don't want to live in modernity, so they move backwards into a world of tradition, right? I mean, I have a lot of friends in my neighborhood that found much more fundamentalist forms of Judaism, for example. Um, and, and I respect that. I mean, they like the community. They like, they, they like the sort of authority. They like that. Postmodernity is an interesting phrase. What it means, it means many different things in different contexts. But in this case, it means being able to have multiple identities layered on top of the other. Okay? Postmodernity means I can participate in one sector of life with one set of values and another sector of life with a different set of values, even if they sort of contradict each other. Right? I mean, so the goofiest example I'll give you is my neighbor who he used to come to my shul. Shabbos. I mean, he would be there every Shabbos, and all of a sudden he stopped coming. You know, so I got worried. So I called him. I said, You okay? Are you ill? He said, No, 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 sir. I, I decided to go try Chabad. I say, okay, that's lovely. It's a, we have a terrific Chabad in the neighborhood. They're lovely guys. And he says, I'm, I'm davening at Chabad. I said, okay, good. That's wonderful. He says, you're not mad? I said, no, I'm delighted. I know the rabbi's there. It's a great place. Have a wonderful day. It's a great davening. He said, yeah, I think I need something more traditional now. 
I said, okay, that's lovely. I said, tell you what, Chabad ends about the same time we end. Why don't you come over and have lunch Shabbos with us, right? So come over and we make a nice lunch Shabbos and we'd love to have you for lunch. He said, I can't. He said, why not? He says, because I take my wife to Costco on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> now, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I get it. You won't daven in a conservative synagogue. It's not religious enough for you. You want to go to Chabad. But on Shabbos afternoon, you're taking your wife to Costco to do your weekly shopping run. Abyssal Meshuga. That's called postmodernity. <laughs> now, and, and he means that. He's very sincere about it. He's very sincere. But you can have these layered identities, right? So up until noon, he's religious. And from noon until four, he's not so much, you know? I mean, or Costco can be a religion, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> you go, you have communion. You have little cups, they give you hot dogs. And, <laughs> Knishes and you know those, you know, very face. I mean, but this is this is postmodernity. It's people trying out all these different. You, you see what's going on, you know. So this is what happens. This is this is postmodernity. I, I think it's a search. It's an earnest, passionate search for a sense of the sacred. People want a sense of the sacred. They want to attach themselves to something bigger than themselves. They want to attach themselves to a meaning that transcends them, to a meaning that will be there after they're gone from the world. They're dying for this. I mean, literally. I mean, just a quick, here's a little statistic, right? We have five armed services, Army, Air Force, Marines, right? Navy, Navy and Coast Guard, right? Coast Guard's getting paid this week, which is good, right? Right. Which, they're all now volunteer, right? So they're all recruiting. You watch the Super Bowl next week, you're going to see a lot of ads for the, because the young men watch the Super Bowl, so they recruit. Which one of the services has the most success in recruiting? Marine Corps. All the other services are having difficulty finding recruits. The Marine Corps has a wait list. The Marine Corps is the most rigorous, the most, in many cases, brutal, right? The most demanding the most disciplined, and it's the, it's, the, it's, the United, it's the armed services that has the most success in recruiting, especially young men. Why? It, it offers everything that the culture doesn't offer. It offers a sense of, of structure, of belonging. You're one of the few and the proud. It offers a sense of meaning. It offers a sense of belonging, of being part of the tribe, of being part of the crew. I mean, there's a really interesting study that the numbers of young men coming back from Afghanistan, there's an astronomical amount of PTSD being reported among veterans coming back from Afghanistan. And what's interesting is the number is something like 30% of the soldiers coming back from Afghanistan report PTSD, but only 10% saw any combat. Why are they having PTSD? Because when you go to the military, you're part of a group, you're part of a team, you're part of a tribe, you're part of a community, you watch out for each other. There's a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood in that tribe, in that team. You come back to America, you're on your own. There's a sense of losing connection. Buber was right. If it's not an I-thou relationship, you lose a piece of yourself. So these are the, there's a passionate search for meaning in this culture we happen to own a wonderful philosophy and tradition of how to add meaning to, to culture, to life. That's really what these philosophers are trying to tell us. Yeah. Okay, got more. There's so many wonderful values. 
<laughs> Overpriced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, I'm going to leave you to answer that question on the way home. I mean, I think that's, that's really, how, how do you convey those values? How do you convey this as a sort of counterculture, as a way of understanding yourself and the world um, that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning? Um, how, do you, how do you involve kids uh, in this? Um, that's the right question. That's the, you've now asked the right question. Don't ask, why don't we? Because that, that makes people feel bad, because that's accusatory. Ask, how can we? Okay, you have wonderful rabbis in this community, wonderful congregations, wonderful sense of warm community. I, I think that you have all the tools to do it. I think you just need to go up and pay them a lot more to do it, okay? <laughs> Michael, was that okay? Was that, was that okay to say that? Michael, was that okay to say that? Where is, where'd he go? All right. Nate, was that okay to say that? No, I think, I think we have to, uh, I think that's the right question to ask. Look, I mean, you know, we, we, this is what we do, it's what I do all day long, it's what I've been doing for my whole adult life, is trying to give people these values, especially young people, these values. Yes, please. Um, my question, my comment is, uh -oh. in our tradition, one of the things that we talk about is, Amisai, our Dinsai. Yeah. and all of that kind of stuff, came to the United States, and your education, the Jewish education became uh, individualistic, that you are an individual and you've got to achieve all these things, yeah. and not talking about the need for the community. Right. Um, where did we lose it, and how did we get it back? Um, that's really where it is. That's a great question. Um, you're asking the right questions, and I'm not sure that I have the right answers. So um, individuality is baked into the American character. But what Buber teaches us is that can't be the last word. Relationship is where meaning lives, and purpose lives, and depth lives, and love lives. And so that's what we try to teach. We try to teach a, an alternative to the ferocious individualism of American life. Um, and one of the ways we do that is by showing kids uh, examples of Jewish communal life. When my kids were young, I mean, because I'm the rabbi, and I had, to, I had to go to a lot of shiva minions, and that meant being out of the house a lot. So I started bringing my teenage son with me to shiva minions. Right? I even brought my daughter. I brought my daughter with me to weddings. You know, this one night, on Saturday night, I'm getting dressed to go do a wedding, and, and I see my daughter there, and I said, why don't you come with me? She said, really? I said, yeah, come on. She was about eight. So she put on her party dress, you know, and she came with me to do a wedding. I wanted to show her what a wedding looked like. I wanted to show my kids what a shiva minion looked like. They, by the, they, they ended up writing about these things in their college essays. My daughter wrote an essay about going with, going with me to do a wedding. Um, and my son wrote an essay about going to a shiva minion because they got to see what a community does, how a community supports and protects and loves each other. 
And I think this is important stuff. These are important experiences um, that we offer our kids. But I think you know, the, the individualism of America, and, and I'll give you one other piece. How many of you are from someplace east of here? Oh, a few of you. <laughs> it, it, individualism gets more acute as you move from east to west. Right? How many of you were raised in a building where other members of your family, not your nuclear family, lived in the same building you were raised in? Like aunts, uncles, cousins lived upstairs, downstairs, or around the block, right? Okay? And then, you know, you get kids. I was a camp director for four very long, miserable, uh, very wonderful summers. And one of the things you learn as a camp director is that these are children who have never shared a bedroom with anybody. And the first thing you do is you put them in a cabin with 14 other kids. And, and they don't know, like, what to do. Like, it's, a, it's an experience, because then you learn community really quickly, you know? And then you, you, you have responsibilities that come with that. And responsibility has to be seen as a dignity, not as a compromise of your, a compromise of your individuality. This is a truth that we have to teach, right? This is a truth that we have to teach, that, that individuality is not the last word. Relationship is the great word. I thou is the great word, because otherwise you end up with people who spend long, lonely lives. And you see this in the community, right? Young man comes to see a rabbi. Every rabbi's had this sick thing. He says to me, I can't find anybody to marry. I say, great, what are you looking for? He says, I just want a traditional girl. You know, girl loves the values, home, family, and tall, you know, and blonde, and thin, you know, and... And, and, and physically fit, and financially well off, and she'll cook for me, and she'll clean. And you realize that he doesn't want a mate. He wants a maid, is what he wants. He wants you know, or, the, or the, the kid who comes to me and says, I think she's right for me, because she checks all my boxes. That's such an interesting phrase, right? Which means I go into the world, I, I'm shopping for a commodity. Wife, commodity, right? And as long as it checks all my boxes, and I said to him, you're not ready to bond with this person. You won't be ready to love her until, she check, until you check all of her boxes. Until you say that my job in life is to make her happy. But that's a kind of transcendence that he's not ready to do because he lives in himself. He's so individualistic because that's what he's been taught his whole life. I think the question you're asking is a marvelous question. And I'm going to leave it with you because I think this is what you should spend the next 10 years discussing here in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, this one and the one that you asked about values. Okay? Who's got the mic? Hello? I have the mic, and my question may be the same question. Good, and I'm going to leave it in the same place. <laughs> I'm persistent. American modern Judaism, the conservative reform movements, addressing what you are trying to address here tonight. Well, first of all, if you think we're organized, <laughs> we're the most disorganized Jews there ever were. My God. First of all, I belong to a movement called the conservative movement. That's an oxymoron. I mean, think you're either conservative or you're moving, one or the other. I mean, that's the first problem. And the second thing is most of us aren't conservative. We're liberal, but we remember, okay, vase, you know. Like, the real question is, is, you know, are we teaching this stuff? Are we... I hope so. Abraham Heschel, in his lifetime, he died in 1972. In his lifetime, no one in the Jewish community paid any attention to him. When he died, the only magazine that had his picture on the cover was called America, which is the Jesuit magazine. The Catholics loved him. The Protestants loved him. 
The anti-war movement loved him. The civil rights movement loved him. The organized Jewish community didn't get him at all. Now, 40 years after his death, he's the most important Jewish philosopher in our culture. And if you read Heschel very carefully, if you read Heschel very carefully, you understand that for Heschel, there's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency to Heschel. The urgency is either we embrace this sense of the ineffable, which means another alternative way of understanding myself and the world, another way of knowing the world, or we're going to destroy ourselves. Heschel was motivated by two realities. The Hasidic world he grew up in taught him that God is alive, God is real. And he never let go of that sense of a living God. But when he went to Germany, he went to Berlin in, 19, in 1929 um, to, um, to study for his doctorate. And he stayed in Berlin from 1929 to 1939, uh, teaching in Berlin and then in Frankfurt. And he watched the rise of Nazism. And then he escaped. He, escaped. he went to go visit his family six weeks before the Nazis uh, opened the war and escaped to London and then to HUC, to, to, to Cincinnati, to America. Heschel had this idea that the Holocaust was very real. And it was caused by this lack of our sense of the ineffable our inability to acknowledge and to embrace the ultimate preciousness of another human being, the inability to embrace the preciousness of the world, the inability to see ourselves called by a transcendent value. And, and, and he really understood that if, you don't, if we don't find this other way of thinking about ourselves, this other way of living in the world, then we're going to destroy ourselves, just the way we destroyed European Jewry before that. And so th this is something that he, he, he really, th this is something that he taught with some great passion. Um, Buber, in many ways, was the same. Buber understood that the, that the loss of meaning in modernity was because we embraced an individualism that forgot the other, the, uh, the thou. So th these are important values, and I, I think the urgency that comes through from these philosophers, it's not just an urgency to save Judaism in modernity, it's an urgency to save us, to save the planet. To save, uh, to, to save, I mean, you can come up with all kinds of rational reasons to be cruel. Self-serving rational reasons for cruelty. But there's only one reason not to be cruel, and that is that you have a deep sense of the preciousness of the other and a deep inner sense of compassion. What Heschel says in his philosophy is, teach me to see the world through God's eyes and to feel the pain of the other. So I, I think that this is so important. I, I, I don't know whether we're going to succeed as an organized community. I, I have a lot of doubts. I, Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley and I were talking before this. I, I, it's been my perception that we go through periods in Jewish life when we have to reinvent ourselves. We have to reinterpret our values, reinvent our institutions, reconsider and reinterpret the mission of the Jewish people in the world. And I think we're going through one of those moments right now. We're going through one of those moments where the, the whole organization of the community is going to change. The institutions are going to change. The values will be the ancient values, but expressed in new idioms and new ways. I see this happening all around me, which is the only reason that I'm somewhat optimistic about the Jewish future, because I see a tremendous amount of creativity being invested in this reinvention of the Jewish people, at least in, in the reinvention of Jewish people in, in my neighborhood, in this world, in, this, in, in, our, in Western life. I think that this offers some possibilities. 
And I think that, that these philosophers will be at the heart of this reinvention. So the answer is, I hope so. How's that? Friend, let's hear it for Rabbi Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.